0: So good to see all of you today. Hope you're doing well. We're in Romans chapter 12. I think everyone was here last week. I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, just a one or two uh, sentence review here. Chapter 12 begins, um, the it applica- goes through 16, is the applicational section of the book of Romans. Uh, Paul has given us, is without question, Paul has given us some deep theology in the first 11 chapters. And you've been patient as we've worked through this together. And now, in a sense, he's asking this question. What does the justified life look like? Remember, that's the main theme of the book of Romans. What does the justified life look like? And the first exhortation is, in verses 1 and 2, is to present our bodies a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God. And to not let ourselves be conformed to this world, but be transformed by a renewing of our minds. That we may discern what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And last week I wrote on the board, and I guess someone here took picture of it, because Glenn sent it out to everybody, but the three dimensions of God's will. So take out a half sheet of paper, I want to give you a quiz on it. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? But that that's so important, and I just want you to connect all those dots. Renew your mind. Transformation begins with the renewing of our mind, with the result that we can discern what the will of God is. What is it? It's three ways he talks about it. The good, the acceptable, and perfect will of God. <clears throat> would you agree, before we get into verse three, would you agree with this sentence? 96% of God's will for your life is already revealed. That's a very specific number. Well, yes, Glenn, I pulled that number out of thin air. Like, okay, good. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> it's kind of disappointing. Um, mm-hmm. What I'm trying, and is that's sort of a ridiculous thing for me to say, but what I'm trying to get you to think about is the the vast amount of content of what God's will for your life is is already revealed. Would you agree with that? In the Bible, yeah. It's in the Bible. Because if you break those three three aspects of God's will down that we did on the board, sovereign will, his moral will, and then his individual will. But as I made, I hope you caught that, when you're talking about the individual, that's the non-moral areas of our life. Why would I say it that way? Because the moral areas of our life are already revealed. You do not have the freedom in Christ to lie or to steal or commit adultery or murder or any of the other dimensions of god's moral law and i in my life i was in an academic setting most of my adult life in a variety of areas but i had countless numbers of students over the years uh, Help me to find the will of god they into my office now what they meant by that was should i marry such and such should, what major should i have what should I accept this option when I graduate that's being offered to me or whatever? And I always would say to the student, you know, the most of what God wants for your life is already revealed. What you're talking about involves your wisdom as a student, your wisdom, your discernment, which is what God gives you as you walk with Him in obedience. That's what the, uh, the wisdom literature of the Bible is all about. Wisdom, discernment, understanding, prudence. Now, I'm saying all that. I don't want to dwell too much more on this. But much of the will of God for us is already revealed. So when he talks about renewing your mind, which we talked through Scripture and so on, so that we can discern what the will of God is because it's already revealed. One of my favorite illustrations of this is in 1 Thessalonians chapter five, no, chapter four, somewhere around verse 11, but the Apostle Paul says, the will of God is that you be sanctified. Now that, based on what we studied in this book, you should know what that means, but when you think that the depths of that, that you be sanctified, that is an enormous amount of our life and God's will for our life that is already revealed to us, okay, that we be sanctified. What do we know is the goal of sanctification? To become like Jesus. Okay, we know the goal of what God's doing in our life. We know the Holy Spirit is the key to the sanctifying price. So I'm just saying so much of God's will for our life is already revealed. But most of the time, we're concerned about, should I buy this house? It's not that that's not an important decision. Should I buy this car? But for the most part, those things are not as important as the will of God is that you be sanctified. The will of God is that you be transformed with the image of my son. I mean, I'm just illustrating some of these examples. So the point I'm trying to make is that you really dig into verse 2 and really start to think deeply about it. You start to realize that much of what Paul is really talking about here is what God has revealed in his word to us. This is what I want you to do, be, and become. I'm kind of using... Some people talk about when they talk about sanctification, and I think it's important for us to always to remember he's not particularly talking in verse two about the kind of next car you should buy. That's not what he's really talking about here. Again, it isn't that isn't important to God? But that's not the real thrust of what he's discussing. Don't be conformed to the world. J.B. Phillips says, don't let the world press you into its mold. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you can discern to God's will. Okay.
1: So where do you think the Holy Spirit uh, comes to play in this, like the home or the car? Uh, Because those those do impact uh, families, the wife, the
0: children. Mm. Well, again, in my judgment, uh, Fred and I spent a lot of time thinking through this, wrote some stuff on it. Those Old Testament words of wisdom and discernment and prudence and understanding, they're all the cluster of words in Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes, the wisdom literature. To me, that's where a lot of that comes in. And I would argue that the Holy Spirit, as he uses his word, which he inspired, helps us to understand it and helps us to embrace and welcome the truth that's there, enables us to become wise and discerning. I'm not sure the Holy Spirit is going to say to you, I want you to buy that red Corvette Stinger. It was made 1965. That's what I want you to buy. I don't think the Holy Spirit is going to do that. I honestly don't. But if you, have, if you have worked through the things in God's word, and you are becoming that wise, discerning, that's the word he uses here, that wise, discerning disciple of Christ, you will choose that which is wise for you at that point in your life as it relates to your family and so on. And so, I mean, these are the kinds of things that I I think when I have worked with young guys, that's always how I try to frame it. You need to develop a strategy of how you can become the wise person person God wants you to be. And so, uh, you know, when Peggy and I made the decision when we moved here to Omaha, the kind of house we were going to buy, we were trying to think the next 20 years, assuming we were going to stay here, what will this impact in terms of the decision we're going to make now to buy a house, what we want to do as our kids grow up. So we made the decision to buy a small home. So we would have extra resources to take the kids and do things with the kids that cost money because we have a big house with a big mortgage and big tax rate and large insurance. We would not be able to do those things. That wasn't an issue of sin. That was an issue. This is a sinful decision. This is not a sinful decision. This was a decision and for our circumstance and our situation, we believed that was the wise thing to do. So yeah, that's what we did. And it's the same thing when you make decisions about cars, and when you make decisions about all kinds of, and that's why I put that up, the, the non-moral issues of your life. Buying a car is not a moral issue. Buying a car isn't an issue of sin versus not sin. That's not that's not what that is. But it is an issue of wisdom. Or you need discernment. And so, uh, well, anyway.
1: The other way of looking at it is if you've got the two big things taken care of, then those little things will make sense. So if you have wisdom, you can know not to that's buy right. a car that you can't afford. That's right. Or a house you can't afford. That's right. Or those other things that if you're taking care of greed, you know, all those other issues,
0: the other decisions become easier. That, that's right. And, I mean, and that's part of that wisdom of discernment, part of the outworking of that is you don't develop those vices of greed and envy and jealousy and so on this is what god's given me we're content with this and that's uh that's not something you see in america right now and it's not something you see even among a lot of christians i mean it's it's uh it's a concern (laughs) i'm on the other side of a cold so i'm going to be coughing a little bit my throat and every now and then sniffing so if you don't like that <laughs> leave because I can't help it that's just the way it's going to be
1: <clears throat>
0: but I am I, doing much better all right I wanted to tie up any loose ends there might have been from the verse one and verse two of chapter 12 they, they can't emphasize this too much these are really important verses verse one and two it's really So right out of the chute, Paul is landing on. Okay, now, verse 3 gives focus. Okay, we've made the decision about presenting our bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice. We've made the decision that by renewing our minds so that we can know what God's will is. Now he shifts to what are sometimes called, and this opens up a big issue of discussion, but spiritual gifts. Because he now is going to focus on the church, that living organism, the body of Christ, not necessarily that building, although that's part of the discussion. But the living body of Christ, the church, is made up of diverse people. And that diversity is illustrated by the diversity of spiritual gifts. And he is something he does in Ephesians, he does this in First Corinthians. It's just a really important issue to him. So what he says for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. I want you to notice how he phrases that, by the grace given to me. The word there is caritas. word for grace is caress. The grace given to me, Paul, I say to everyone among you, he's exercising his apostolic authority. But he frames it around, but by grace, God's given to me. Why would he put it that way? That he is an apostle with the authority to issue an apostolic exhortation, but he frames it for the grace given to me. Why would he frame it that way? And he starts, why would he put it that way? Why do he just say, I say to everyone among you? And everybody would have listened and paid attention, but he doesn't frame it that way. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone. He's issuing an apostolic exhortation, but he frames it. By the grace given to me why would he do it that way
1: because before the damascus road he didn't have god's grace and christ appeared to him and he got god's grace okay did he deserve it no earn it
0: merit it so even even his position as an apostle he sees as evidence of god's grace and since he's calling everyone to don't think more highly of yourself, it's important that he models that. I'm issue, issuing an apostolic exhortation here because it's rooted in the grace that God's shown to me. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Of course, that's such an important issue that's zeroing in on the issue of pride. The issue of thinking highly of yourself, of self-elevation, of self-esteem uh, self, uh, uh, issues where you think so high, I'm so great and all that talk. Paul said, no, that's not how I think of myself. I don't want anyone. But to think with sober judgment. Woody uh, commented on that when we began this morning, but to think with sober judgment. And that, that's, that is the right way to translate that word, sober judgment. And it it can mean relating to alcoholic issues, but it's much broader than that. Sober judgment. Sober means moderate, temperate, balanced, sensible. I gave you a whole bunch of synonyms there. That's what that Greek word means. Moderate, temperate, balanced, sensible judgment. And so it's it's actually a, a wonderful way to put it How you see yourself is going to relate to how you see others. As Paul's trying to model that and illustrate that. Okay. What do you mean by that, Paul? This he continues. According to measure of faith that God has assigned. The measure, the little the translated measure there is metron. What word do we get from metron? Peter? No, metric. We get a word metric. It's it's a way of measuring something. You know, the United States isn't on the metric system, but you know what I mean by the metric system, don't you? Metric is the way you measure something. So he says, a sober judgment, a moderate, balanced, sensible judgment about ourselves. According to the standard is, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned them. That's a really an interesting way to put it. The quality of faith, the quality of trust that each believer has, that God has assigned, God has apportioned. Now, if that's how you look at yourself, you see yourself the way God sees you based on the measure of faith, the measure of grace that he's given to you. That is the antidote to pride. That is the antidote to self-esteem and self-elevation. What he's trying to say is a balanced, sensible, moderate view of yourself is to see yourself because of God's grace and the faith and trust you have in Him, the way He sees you, not the way you see yourself—pride, I'm great, accomplished, so much—the way God sees you. How did Paul? This is. Always amazing to me. I was just reading Second Corinthians chapter 12. If you've ever read that, Paul lays on the table all of his credentials. It's his resume. You ever read that? Here's the here's Paul. Here's
1: what I present to you. Beaten.
0: Scourged. Thrown into the sea three times. Shipwrecked twice. Left for dead after being stoned. Remember, there's credentials. He says, you know what? I, I was taken up to paradise. And I had a grand vision of what God had. I can't even put it into words. But to make sure I was not conceited with this, what did God do? He gave me a sword in the flesh from Satan. It's a messenger of Satan. God permitted it, but it's a messenger of Satan, sword in the flesh. And what does he say? I asked God three times to remove it. And then what does he say? I learned something through that. That when I'm weak, I'm really strong, because in my weakness, the strength of God is released. This is what Paul's talking about here. If you go to Second Corinthians chapter twelve, he gives an illustration. He lived this, and so you you to not see yourself different than the way God sees you. And so what Paul and I'm just using as an illustration. In Corinthians 12, Paul boasted in the things that no reasonable human being would boast in that stuff. Who's going to lay on the table your resume that lists all the things that you happen to you? You're beaten, scourged, thrown into the, into the sea three times, stoned, and left for dead. He's like talking about in Lystra and all these other things. You couldn't do that. You'd pull out all of your pedigrees, all the, all the letters that are after your name, and all the accomplishments and all the awards you all. And if we see ourselves the way God sees us, when I'm weak, that's when I'm really strong. Maybe you guys are all there. I'm not there yet. I'm still struggling with some of that. That in my weakness, the power of God is And in And in, in understanding who I am in Christ, that is the right way to look at myself every single day that I live. So he transfers this exhortation, don't think more highly of yourself to now the body of Christ is a diversity of the body for as, I'm in verse 4 now as in one body we have many members that would be the human body and the members do not all have the same function if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 Paul really illustrates this just elaborates on it but that makes sense you have an arm and you have a leg they don't do the same thing they're different but they're part of the one body If you don't have arms and legs, that's going to create some issues. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And that's the metaphor that he uses for the church. and individually members of one another. Just like the human body is made up of parts that are different, but all relate together to produce the living, functioning body. So the body of Christ is one. With a diversity of many members, but we're connected. We do not compete; we cooperate. We we do not try to be better. We try uh, than the other. We try to work based on our own strengths and own gifts, so that the end result is this united body working together. Produces what God wants through his church. That works the same in a marriage. But that's not what he's talking about here. Verse 6. Having gifts that differ. Verse 6. Having di- grace, gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Notice that again. The spiritual gifts we have are the grace given to us. That's why we get, when we put these two together, charismata. Charismata is the gift of grace. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12. That's given by the Holy Spirit. What he does in the next part of verse 6 on through the end of verse 8 is he itemizes a series of spiritual gifts. This is not an exhaustive list. It's not even a comprehensive list. It's a suggestive list. D.A. Carson, in his wonderful book, Showing the Spirit, makes the argument that in the gifts listed here and in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 and 2 Peter 2, we do not have an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. Notice the New Testament doesn't list for us all of the spiritual gifts there are, but does list some. So let's look at these gifts. Now, I want to go back again. This is in this context of what what started uh, in in verse 3. The grace given to me, I give you an apostolic exhortation. Don't think more highly of yourself, but understand yourself the way God understands you. And the point he's making is, understand your spiritual gift and understand everyone else has spiritual gifts and that you're to work together. And so he illustrates do you want me to talk about each one of these? Sure. All right. One of you said yes. The rest of you are silent. What should I do? Silence is <laughs> right. a sin. Yes. Go no, talk. All right. So again, I, I stress this: if you put this into English, it's the charismata, the grace gift, and in connecting what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, given by the Holy Spirit. So this is a suggestive list. It's not comprehensive. It's not exhaustive. Let us use them to the grace. Let us use them if prophecy, in proportion to our faith. Please note that he's connecting two really important aspects: prophesy or prophecy, and get and faith. I began to carry my own marker. (laughs) Now, this is the spiritual gift of prophecy. Now, please note, the C. If it would be prophesied with an S, that means the act of giving prophecy. That's not what he's using. He's using the word of prophecy. Now, prophecy has two dimensions to it in the Bible. Prophecy is the proclamation of revealed truth. Prophecy can also mean telling. Of the future. Jeremiah, I'm talking about the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah is an example of biblical prophecy. Jeremiah is telling Judah, before they go into captivity, the future. He's telling them what's going to happen. He tells them what's going to happen when they go into captivity. You're going to tell them, stay there for 70 years. Build your homes, farm, plant your crops, raise your kids, etc., He's telling them this is what's going to happen to you. But most of the time, and this is how it's used here in this verse, it's the proclamation of revealed truth. And that's why you will see, uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul uh, Paul Philip had four daughters who were prophets. They are prophesying. What does that mean? There in, in, uh, in Samaria, they were telling the future, and that's not what it means. They were proclaiming the revealed truth of God. So, please note, go to that verse, that we're studying. Prophecy, according to what? Faith. Prophecy, notice that. Prophecy, according to, what am looking do the wrong faith? Prophecy, in proportion to our faith. And so, that's that's really important because proclamation revealed truth, and he tells us according to what? Okay. Now, when he uses the word faith, then what does he mean? That act of trust that you put in Jesus when you believe that His death, burial, and resurrection for you, or does he mean faith in terms of the revealed doctrine, the Christian faith, the content of what it means to be a Christian, the content of all that's revealed to us? So which one is it in proportion to your faith? The content, the content of what you believe. Of course, what you believe is based on what God's revealed. So he's really setting an important marker here. He's really putting an important boundary around the spiritual gift of prophecy. The spiritual gift of prophecy is a proclamation of revealed truth according to the faith that's been revealed, the Christian faith. Let's put it another way. I, 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 it sounds like I'm stretching this, but I don't think I am. This is exactly how Paul talks about in pastoral epistles. Prophecy according to the doctrine that God's revealed, the sound doctrine of our faith. So, What he's really pleading for here is the proclamation of the doctrine that God revealed. I'm not making this up. This isn't what I think. This isn't what I believe. This is what God has revealed. And that's what I'm going to proclaim to you. Can you give an example of that today? How that would work? It's pretty easy.
1: Someone asks you, why you believe in Christ? You believe in Christ, or do you believe in Christ
0: rose from the dead? you say yes, because that's revealed in your faith. That's right. I'm real hard on that. I, it, well, it would be the, the best place, and Bill, you're absolutely right. The best place to illustrate this is what do you believe about Jesus Christ? If, I am given the ta- if I'm given the spiritual gift of prophecy, illustrating it, I will proclaim the revealed truth about Jesus Christ what's the Christian faith say about Jesus Christ he was a great man that's not distinctively Christian he was a great ethic, great ethical teacher you can be a Christian not and believe that you don't have to be a Christian believe that a lot of people believe that I believe that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man oh I believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. I believe that Jesus Christ ascended into the Father, sitting at his right hand. I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back again. I believe that Jesus Christ one day rules King of kings and Lord of Lords on this planet. Zechariah 14 tells you you're going to rule from dr- Now you're getting specific and you're itemizing doctrinal positions about who Jesus Christ is. That you believe
1: has been revealed to you.
0: That's right. And I'm proclaiming that. And that's what that's why it's such an important pr- prophecy in proportion to our faith. And I mean, that's a great way to translate. I read from the ESV translation. That's a great way to translate that in proportion to our faith. Not what I'm saying, but what's been revealed. And that's why we speak of the Christian faith as a body, a belief a content, I belief. This is what Christians believe, and that's why I proclaim it. And so it's just so fascinating to me. That's the very first thing, and uh, all the different lists that I quickly itemized there a moment ago that are in the New Testament, they all have different places where they begin. But he's, this one is beginning, prophecy and a portion to our faith, which relates to renewing your mind and all the stuff he have been talking about so far. All right. Now, if we spend this much time in each one of these, we won't finish this till 2024. But if service, I'm in verse 7 now, in our serving, and the word for service is diakonoia. We get our word deacon from that. So it's, and that word diakonoia, service, was used of waiting on tables. So what is he saying? There is such a thing as a charismata, a spiritual gift of service, of serving people. It can mean literally serving at a meal you might have in the church or whatever, but it's a spirit of service. What are the boundaries to that? There are hardly any boundaries. I mean, serving other people is very broad, it can involve so many things. If if I'm not mistaken, I I think that's still true. This church, Christ Community Church, Has a service ministry of changing the oil of single moms, which is a fantastic diakonoya. It's a fantastic service to a group of people that usually can't afford it, don't have time, many of them don't know how to do it. So they just have you you shook your head, Bill. So you still have that functioning ministry. That's an illustration of that. Thirdly, the one who teaches. And the word for teach there is Didaskalia, I know that doesn't mean a lot to you, but that word is focusing on content. The one who teaches in his teaching. And didaskalia, teaching is the teaching of, of content, of doctrine, of theology, of God's word. And so that is a very important and, and I think central gift to the church. I believe that God has given me the spiritual gift of teaching. And that's why I wanna exercise that gift to its maximum. And that people that don't have that gift should not teach. And usually it doesn't take you very long to figure out that person doesn't have the gift. And I'm not being mean there, I'm just saying, you discern the value and worth of a person's spiritual gift by how they're exercising it. I started with a man and said, If you want to figure out what your spiritual gift is, get busy serving in the church. And you will figure out what that gift is. Because other people are going to be blessed by what you do, are going to affirm, etc. Verse 8. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The word exhort, or as the noun exhortation, is paraklesis which is really important, a call to action, to exhort someone. I mean, who talks like that? Can you ever hear anybody use the word exhort in a sentence in the last 10 years? We don't talk like that, but you got to think, okay, what does that mean to exhort someone? You're calling them to action. Here's what you believe. Here's what you think it's true. Here's what you see as God's call upon your life. I exhort you get busy, a call to action. It was, actually, uh, it was actually a very important term in the Greco-Roman world. Paul is adopting it into the Christian church. Hmm.
1: A good pastor,
0: and I have to be careful how I say this, uh, but a good pastor should always have as a part of his message an exhortation. Let's make it, let's bring it down to a milder, an unimportant application. If you believe what this text we've been studying means, then here's what you should be doing. Exhorting them, calling them to action, to
1: obedient action. Got it? That's the so what of a sermon.
0: Yes, Pastor Matt says, that's the so what of a sermon. If you believe this is true, which we've just studied together, what's the takeaway that's going to cause you to act differently? What's the call to action in your life?
1: And this isn't just uh, out of it's the congregation members encouraging
0: one another as well. Oh yeah, exhorting one another, absolutely. I just illustrated that as a pastor. But that matter of exhortation is, if we really believe this, and if this is what it's saying, then let's get busy and do this, whatever it is. It's very, we're speaking very abstractly there, but that's, that's, that's the point. And there's, there's that mutual exhortation, that mutual call to action that is part of what the body does. Continuing, kind of in the middle of verse 7, or excuse me, verse 8. The one who contributes in generosity. This is the, the spiritual gift of giving, but in, in generosity. The one who leads, uh, and that, that is, some people would not necessarily say that's the best way to translate that, because it gives aid, helps, encourages, but with zeal, with zeal. And uh, leadership is, should always be zealous. And that's uh, another New Testament uh, uh, and really biblical exhortation. And then finally, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And the Greek word there is actually almost hilarity. But um, these are, this is what is sometimes called the gifts of mercy. So let's talk a little bit about
1: that. The gifts of mercy
0: doing acts of mercy what would be what would be some illustrations of that because you read something like that the one who does acts of mercy oh that sounds so good so spiritual amen what does it mean i don't know it just sounds really good so let's talk about it. what would be acts of mercy and remember what the word mercy means you're doing something for someone and they don't deserve that they deserve something much more severe. They deserve punishment. They they deserve they deserve condemnation. But that's not what you're doing. <laughs> it would be an act of mercy.
1: Wouldn't just simply forgiving
0: somebody for wronging you qualify? I think so. That would be an illustration. Mm-hmm. But the does acts of mercy. So it's it's oh, real. I'm no, no, that's not wrong, Joe. But the the Emperor does acts of so it's acts of mercy. You're doing it. What might be a real good penetrating example of an act of mercy? Finding someone
1: who's destitute. Okay. Reaching out and talking and asking, Is there any way that I can help you with service?
0: My grandmother, this is a long time ago. both before World War II and after World War II. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, they lived uh, on a street called Duke Street. There were, we called them bums. Today we would call them homeless men who were out of work. My grandmother was a woman that was known, she would give a hot meal to a bum. They couldn't come in the house. She would give them the hot meal, they'd have to sit on the porch and eat the meal. I always think of my grandmother, that was an act of mercy. They didn't deserve that, certainly didn't earn it, but she believed that was something she could do to help someone. That's, and and it, during the Depression, unlike today, there was no safety net. You know, if you were out of a job, you were homeless. That was it. I mean, you, you, it was really extreme destitution compared to anything we know today in the United States. But I always think of that, how, what my grandmother did there. My mom and I uh, used to talk about the things that my grandmother did in those acts of mercy. How about visiting prisoners? Remember Elizabeth Fry? Uh, Fred's in one of the classes I teach. This last week, we studied Elizabeth Fry, who lived in 18th century England. Uh, and she started, she's incredible. She had 11 children, an incredible woman. She started a ministry in Newgate Prison, which in the in the section with women. Because in England, this is the time of, into the 19th century, Victorian England and so on, what Charles Dickens wrote about and Oliver Twist and Great Expectations and all that if women were arrested for stealing a loaf of bread and she had two kids, those two kids would go to prison with her because there was no social system. And in these prisons for women, there were, there were no bathrooms. There was a pot in the corner. There was no bed. They gave you some straw and the little kids are this. And Elizabeth Fry started to, this is wrong. And she started doing acts like she gave them Bibles. She started to teach them things. She started to help them get, get certain skills that when they get out of prison, I mean, that's an act of mercy. And uh, she's an extraordinary woman. She turned the entire prison reform system upside down. She's an amazing woman. But it illustrates, and we we were studying those, there were three of them. William Wilberforce, who, he did with slavery. Ashley, Anthony Ashley Cooper, who began dealing with child labor, in England, because during the Industrial Revolution, from age seven on up, children were taken into the factories, textile mills largely, and into the coal mines, and worked 12 hours a day, six days a week. And he said, that's wrong, <laughs> because there was no public education system for kids. And I'm just saying, that's an act of mercy. You see something, I say, I can make a difference. And then Elizabeth Fry with prison reform. And he says, with cheerfulness, you do an act of mercy with cheerfulness. This was the thing that's so amazing about Elizabeth Fry. How she approached this with cheerfulness. And she showed something to these women that no one else was showing. And she literally transformed the prison system of England. One woman, the impact she made. So, what Paul is talking about here, and he's, again, he's only touched the surface of charismata spiritual gifts, a special spiritual enablement given by the Holy Spirit for ministry and service. Prophecy, the service, the Daskalia, teaching, exhortation, call to action, giving, generosity, leading,
1: and then acts of mercy.
0: Don't think more highly of yourself. Think of yourself within the context of how God has gifted you. And get busy doing. Got it? Amen. I mean, you can see why when Christians started to take this stuff seriously, they turned the Roman Empire upside down. They really did. I've mentioned this before, I, probably none of you, and I wouldn't expect you to, but Tom Holland, is a British historian, in 2019 published a book entitled Dominion. And what he does is he shows, and he is not a Christian, he's a historian, but what Holland does is he shows the revolutionary impact of the church in years. And he studies it, he, he takes segments, he studies each segment, and he illustrates it. And, I mean, the things that we're talking about, but he, in the very early Irenaeus of Leon is the beginning, and he talks about when the waves of plague would sweep through the Roman cities. You know, plagues are not something that just happened in 1300s. Every were plagued all the time. A disease, because in densely populated areas, disease comes through. everybody would run for the hills. That's where that comes from. But the Christians stayed. And the Christians cared for the sick. That's acts of mercy. In the Greco-Roman world, if you had a child that was deformed or, or Down syndrome or something like that, you'd take the child out into the hills and just leave it, or within a couple of days, the child would be dead. The Christians rescued those children. acts of mercy. And what I'm saying is this was one of the remarkable things. They took this stuff seriously, and they began to live it. They followed the exhortations of their pastors. And they began to turn the Roman Empire upside down, because the Roman Empire didn't do any of that. They're the ones who practiced all this. And so this is, this is what makes the difference between Christianity and any other worldview. Because if you are an atheist, I'm using it as an example, why would you do these things? I mean, why would you do them? There is no God, there's nothing eternally significant. Me, I'm just gonna live for the moment because eat drink and mix tomorrow I die, and that's it. The Christians say that is not the way I look at it. My sound doctrine teaches me there's an eternal significance to everything I do. And so I start living my faith now, and I'm gonna make an impact now. That's exactly what they do. So I mean this is a marvelous passage of scripture when you start to not only understand it, but you start to see how these Christians live this stuff out. And they turned that crazy empire upside down. Now, I have about 10 minutes, and I'm going to get started on this. But we'll never get this done at the rate we're going. And it's always, your fault. Not my fault. No, I'm just kidding. But he starts to talk now. What does the character of the Christian look like? What does the character of the justified Christian look like? And so it begins with
1: verse 9. Let love be genuine.
0: That's all over the Bible. That's all over the New Testament. Now, you already know this, but let me just make sure you're... With. When you see the word love, here, what is the Greek word for that? Everybody knows this Greek word. What is it? Agape. The Greek word is agape. Now, if you don't know that word, your assignment is to know that word. Memorize that word. Don't forget that word when you get to the gates of heaven, God's going to ask you this question. And if you can't answer it, you're not going to get in. Those last two sentences are false. Don't believe it. But it's just an important. It's one of those Greek words. Christians should know that word because there are two other Greek words that you don't want to use in this context. Eros, which is romantic sexual love, and phileo, which is the love of the brother, brother-sister type love. This is Agape. Agape is that self-sacrificing, other-centered love. Paul had said at the beginning of this, this section, don't think more highly of yourself. So an illustration of that in terms of my character as a Christian is my love will be genuine. That's probably the best way to translate that term, that your love be genuine. What does genuine mean? That is a word that's used frequently. So that's not a new word. Sincere. Sin- okay, good. Sincere. It's true. It's if you put it in a negative way, it's not faked. It's not superficial. It's not shallow. Now, to drive the point home, the Bible, especially in the New Testament, really stresses who models that kind of love for us. Christ does. He died on the cross for us. He was not thinking more highly of himself. Paul makes a lot of this in Philippians chapter two. But, so, for love to be genuine I, in the remaining six, seven minutes, I, I want to talk about this for a while. So, let's, let's,
1: let's do it this way. Now that
0: I have a good marker that works, I'm gonna go nuts with it, so be in, okay? Let's put a list, put a list together.
1: Genuine love, okay? Genuine love.
0: What, what would that look like?
1: Motivated by faith and philosophy as opposed to simply action.
0: Okay, I'm not sure I know what you mean by that, Russ. I mean, I heard your words, but I'm not sure I know what you mean by that. So, how you think, right? You're not your your faith leads to how you think. How you think leads to how you feel. How you feel leads to what you do. So, you know, if you're trying to just check a box, right? Okay. Well, it says here in Romans that I got to do this. So, okay, check. I've loved. Well, okay. you really haven't because that hasn't become part of who you are true faith that animates your philosophy, that animates your... Okay. So, your genuine genuine love, the genuine agape, which is what this means, the genuine agape is reflecting your faith. Okay? That that would be good. What else, in a real practical, gut-level, interpersonal Genuine love. What would that look like? Who you are from the heart. Okay. Who you are from your heart. That's, that's because of time here. Let's talk about in a marriage. Actually, What you do. What you do. What you say. If it's agape, other-centered, self-sacrificing love, regardless of what the person is doing or saying, I will do that. I will love that person. Paul makes a big deal of this in Philippians 5. He's talking about a husband, you love your wife as Christ loved the church. Christ put no demands on that. His love was illustrated by his death on the cross, etc. So what I'm trying to also get at, listen, love is not manipulative. Agape love is not manipulative. It's not controlling. Love is not self-centered. I really should, should put an end of self 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> you understand what I mean by that? Because manipulative love is, I will love you because of what I get out of this. And if you don't do it, I'm not going to love you. If a husband treats his wife like that, I guarantee you, that marriage is headed for divorce. It is not going to last. Either that hey, or to another totally disastrous relationship that we have to horrible living. Hey, Jim. I, Jim. I, I argued with my wife,
1: and my wife would say to me,
0: Stop it. I, <laughs> okay. Hey, I, Jim. I, I, to my heart. It's so, two or three of
1: those. I was done.
0: Yeah. I thought, <laughs> yeah. This
1: is hurting me more. Yeah. And so
0: I thought. Good. Love. Yeah. Yeah. And what were you going to say there too? Uh, I don't think I don't think you heard. Uh, Russ had some input for you. Who does? Russ. Uh, oh. I think I heard what I think I did get what Russ yeah. said. Love. Okay. it's, it's not I love you if it's not I love you because it's simply I love you unconditionally. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's another good way to put it. So, again, because we're men, and, and that's, that's the context of this, so many men's love for their wives is manipulative. It really is. I mean, I've been around men, Christian men, in lots of contexts in, in my ministry in life. and life. And that is just a disastrous way to look at your wife and say, I love my wife. But in effect, what you're saying, you're manipulating, you're getting her to do what you want her to do because of what you want. And so the genuine love affects everything and every relationship that we have. I have learned, and as Fred illustrated in his own marriage, I've learned, I've been married to Peggy for 53 and a half years, but I've learned what it means to love her. I can tell you the first eight, nine years of our marriage, well, first of all, when we got married, we didn't know the Lord, but you know, I mean it was horrible. But as you watch the Lord after I came to the Lord in 72 and all the things, then you start to rethink some of your priorities as you are in, in God's word and so on. Same way with raising children. If you think you can pound your kids into obedience, you're building a relationship that's going to result in rebellious children. It's not going to work. Or if you, well, anyway. Um, how about in the workplace? And that's a, different, that's a different relationship. It really is. But what does love look like in the workplace? Because in the workplace, you have accountability standards, you have performance standards, you have all those things. But what does love look like in the workplace? What does genuine love look like in the workplace? It's sensitive to other people, think you see there need okay you still have that other centered servant, but sometimes the other centered servant attitude toward people is you're in the wrong seat of the bus, and I've got to change your seat I and mean, if you're a boss a supervisor, and the loving thing to do is get them out of the seat, get them in another seat and so that's it's <laughs> that's the hard thing because leaders often all they want to do is meet the performance goal and don't care about the people that really help them reach that performance goal. But the more you serve and love people, the more you're going to reach that performance goal. And that's why to, to work with individuals who genuinely love the Lord and genuinely show this kind of love, it's, it's really a wonderful thing to see in action. To see leaders who love people the way Christ loved people. And that sometimes means... You really are on the wrong seat in this bus. I'm going to change your seat. Sometimes you need to leave the bus. That's a loving thing to do, isn't it? They're in the wrong role. They can't do it. And so the loving, because ultimately that's the best thing to them. Now, I'm using in some ways ridiculous examples, but this, I, I want you to think. As we think applications, the mark of the Christian, and it is very instructive, and this list of character traits, love's the first one. That's not a coincidence. That's the overarching governing character trait. Francis Schaefer wrote a book one time called The Mark of the Christian. And you open the book, what's the mark of the Christian? Love. Jesus said, You will know that you, they will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. That's pretty important. Today, the message is, you will know, you're my disciples, by how you fight with one another. That is often the case. I mean, it's just, uh, it's pretty tragic in some cases. All right, well, I think I'm going to stop. Because what follows builds on this now. So tomorrow, what we'll do is we'll continue with this itemization of these character traits of the Christian, which Paul's dealing with, and he—it's a, it's a pretty long list. So I hope this will be. Pick up on ten. Yeah, uh, in the middle of uh, in the middle of verse nine, actually. Uh, okay. Abhor what is evil. That's where I'll start. All right. I here. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was a fast hour. I can't believe. It. Look at all that I put on the board. I took that. I got this pen. Because <laughs> That pen don't work. So in my class, morning class that I teach, I, there's a big board there. Trying to use it, and like that, their, their marks don't work. So, a guy brought in a bag with ten markers in it this <laughs> morning. Ten, just like this. He gave me a bag. Ten, just like this. And I said, his name's Fred as well, but I said, Fred, I'll be using these till I die. (laughs) My wife always says, you'll be using those till we go to the home together. (laughs) But I I appreciated that. So I'm going to try to bring that with me. Father, thank you for the book of Romans that we're studying together. The challenge in this section of chapter 12 and following is the challenge. This is what the justified life looks like. And uh, it's an immense challenge. It's a challenge for me personally. Every time I study this, I'm just absolutely overwhelmed with what you're doing in my life and transforming me. This is what you want to see in my life, and this is what you want to see in all these men's lives. These are the characteristics of the disciple of Jesus. These are the characteristics of a person who's serious about their faith and walk with you. So as we're just beginning these character traits that we've just started this morning, I pray that you'll help bring conviction to our hearts. Bring the desire to continue to allow you to transform us and give us the desire to walk in loving obedience with you, to become all that you want us to become and be. So I commit these men to you, You guys online, as well as the guys here in the class, classroom. So we trust you with this. We thank you that you're loving and patient with us. Thank you that you are slowly doing your work as we're on this journey together with you through life. May we represent you well, is our prayer in Christ's name. See you next week.
1: Thanks, Jim.